And now, please welcome Isabel Wilkerson and Sherilyn Eiffel. Okay, you've been here long enough, so let's get right to it. So I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to read this extraordinary book. Um, I read it on a trip to California and literally could not put it down. It is so compelling. And so I'm so excited to have the opportunity to talk with the author, with Isabel Wilkerson, about the book. Um, I think it captures such an important part of American history, and I'm hoping that in this discussion we'll have a chance to kind of hear more about the context surrounding how this book was written, um, but that we really will have ample time for you to ask questions. And so I just want to jump right in by asking um, you, Isabel, to describe really how you define what was the Great Migration and what led you to want to write about it. Well, first of all, thank you for having me here. Um, it is so uh, moving and emotional for me to be here in Baltimore because this is the region of my birth. It was this region that drew my parents, my mother from Rome, Georgia, and my father from Southern Virginia, from Petersburg, Virginia. And so it is always so special for me to be here. It just means so much to me. Um, there's a photograph that I found when I was a little girl of my mother and uh, a childhood friend of hers from Rome, Georgia. And it shows two young women at the beginning, the cusp of, of life. Um, and one, they're both looking like very Betty Davis. They're in these, they're, they're, their hair is just about this length and they've got the curls and they've got the, the padded shoulders and the coats brushing their knees and they're sitting together on a, on a stoop on our street in Washington, D.C. And uh, they had both come up from Rome, Georgia to the north, which is, this is the north to people from Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> And one of them was my mother, who would go on to become a teacher in Washington, D.C., and the other was uh, her friend who uh, went, uh, went on to become a teacher here in Baltimore. And so those, that photograph represents the migration in that one photograph from Georgia to the destination point, the receiving station, as it's known, uh, for people from that part of the, of the South to here. So it's very special for me to be here. And we used to have to make, uh, we would come back and forth, obviously, to visit her and she to see us. So this is a really important part of my own personal background. Uh, the Great Migration uh, is what I describe as the greatest underreported story of the 20th century. And I say that because it involved six million people, six million people who left all parts of the South for all points, points of the North, the Midwest, and the West from World War I until 1970 when the conditions that had fed the migration to begin with no longer essentially existed because the civil rights movement ended the caste system which, under which they had lived. And uh, during that time, essentially it was a redistribution of, the entire, of an entire uh, population of African Americans in the South, and it reshaped both the South and the North and all the destination cities that they went to, such that the majority of African Americans that you meet in the North, the Midwest, and the West are now descended from people who migrated in, as a part of that great movement. When the migration began in, in World War I, uh, 90%, 90% of all African Americans were living in the South. By the end of that great migration, 
nearly half were living anywhere but the South. They were living in this great arc from Washington and Baltimore to, uh, to New York and Philadelphia, over to Cleveland and Detroit and Chicago, and all the way over to Seattle and San Diego and the entire West Coast. So it was a redistribution of, of an entire people in some ways. And it's that migration, the departure of those people who left as a result of the fact that the North finally opened up because of World War I, World War I meant that the North had a desperate labor shortage because uh, Europeans were no longer able to immigrate as easily as they had been before because Europe was at war. Those who, often, who were here working the foundries, the slaughterhouses, the meatpacking plants, the railroads, the shipyards, they were often going back in order to help with the war effort back home. They were needed back home, and thus the North had a labor shortage, and it turned its attention to the cheapest labor in the country, which were African Americans who were at the lowest totem pole, the lowest uh, level of the caste system of the South, and they began recruiting them. They were not always able to do so openly. They had to do it in secret. And eventually, once the word spread, uh, basically the floodgates opened up and African Americans began to leave in, uh, by the millions. More people left the South, more African Americans left the South during World War I than had left during the five preceding decades, which had been the five decades between the World War, World War I and Emancipation Proclamation. So these people were, in effect, seeking political asylum within their own country. They were in some ways defecting from a Jim Crow caste system which had controlled their every move and uh, it, was, it was not recognized for what it was because it was in some ways under the radar screen and the people didn't announce themselves. They were not having to pass through Ellis Island. They were not having to uh, go through customs so they could go under the radar screen and it went uh, undetected in many ways until there were so many that people began then to look at the socioeconomic challenges of this many people crowding into very narrow bands of land where they were limited as to where they could go, the health con considerations, the overcrowding, all of that became sort of, then became quickly an urban problem as opposed to uh, truly understanding it as an immigration that had recur occurred within our own country. And so that's one reason why I call it the greatest underreported story of the 20th century. You, you do something very provocative in this book in that, you know, you were just talking about World War I, the beginning of the Great Migration, but you also offer this, this theory, you prove it, that it lasts much longer than most historians talk about. I mean, traditionally the Great Migration is seen as a very short period, and you take it all the way up to 1970, which is its own comment on really when um, the caste system starts to, to transform things in the South and when the Civil Rights Movement begins to really bear fruits. Can you say something about that? Well, the thing about it, the thing about it is it's fascinating is that at every turn, at every turning point in this migration, scholars, sociologists uh, were, and economists were looking for it to be over. In other words, after World War I, the people will have no more reason to come, and so they will stop coming. But actually, more people came after World War I than had come before, during World War I. So that each succeeding decade, they were coming in large, in large enough numbers that by the time World War II arrived, actually more people, more than 1.5 million arrived during World War II alone 
that period of time, that decade, so that it, 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 it was an unabated outflow, outpouring of people that did not end until 1970, statistically speaking, because the, nobody told the people that it was over. I mean, nobody, <laughs> told, nobody told the people in Tennessee and Mississippi and Alabama that they weren't supposed to be coming anymore, that they actually know the migration is over and you're not to come anymore. No one told them that. In fact, it, it, was a, a, it, it almost fed itself because once people had a neighbor, an aunt, a great uncle up in the north, they now had opportunities and insights and connections that they had never had before. These people were in some ways, uh, in some ways imprisoned in a remote, a remote uh, outposting, you might say, within our own country. And so they had very little ways, very few ways of really knowing how to get access outside of this world that they were stuck in and that they wanted to get out of, but there was, there was no way for them to get out otherwise. And one of the reasons why I talk about it as, an, as a kind of, I compare it to the immigrant experience, even though they were not immigrants. They were born in this country. They were the descendants of people who've been in this country for longer than, than most other people uh, in this country. However, they had been forced to do something that was more like an immigrant behavior. And I describe it that way because they had the same yearnings as anyone else. And they had the same desires for something better as anyone else, but they had to act upon it in a way that was not um, what, what you would normally consider a citizen having to do. They had to, they had to create their own citizenship by leaving. And just by leaving, they could experience the, the, the full rights and privileges of what they had been born to but had not been recognized where they were. So why don't you describe what they were fleeing from? Well, what they were freeing from was a caste system that was so arcane and, and uh, in some ways so bizarre in its specificity as to be almost beyond comprehension for us now. There are no references in the book to water fountains and restrooms. Had the Jim Crow system, had the caste system been limited to that, I don't believe that there would have been as many people leaving. The caste system was so well defined that it controlled the movements of everyone of all races from the moment they woke up to the moment that they went to sleep. There were reminders everywhere. Uh, for example, in, in uh, Birmingham, it's now famously known that it was against the law for African for a black person and a white person to play checkers together. It was against the law for a black person and a white person to merely play checkers together. Someone must have seen an African-American and a white person playing checkers, checkers together on some park square, park bench, and they must have been having just too good a time. <laughs> and someone must have decided that the very foundation of Southern civilization was at risk, and we must not allow this. And they actually wrote that down as a law. <laughs> there were, throughout the South, in courtrooms throughout the South, there was a black Bible and a white Bible to swear to tell the truth on. That meant that when a black person took the witness stand, there had to be a different Bible than that which had been touched by the white witness who had just taken the stand. They could not touch the same Bible. And the way that I found out about this was, not, was, was through a newspaper article in North Carolina, but it wasn't because they were writing about this new law or that the law was unusual or or bizarre. They were, that was, it was understood and it was considered to be normal. It was not a bizarre thing to them. But the reason that it, it came to note in the newspaper was because a trial was in progress and they could not find the black Bible. 
They couldn't find the black Bible. They, it, that meant that the trial was disrupted at that time. And the judge said, since this is the law of our state, we, and this is a court of law, we will follow the law, and we need to find the black Bible. So the bailiff, all the other court officers had to stop what they were doing and find this Bible for the black person to, uh, to swear to tell the truth on. So there was just an example of just how extreme and arcane and how specific and how at every turn there was something to remind people that they were of a different caste. Now this caste system, like any caste, is artificial by definition and uh, was self-imposed so that they were born, you were assigned a caste upon birth and it took uh, time for children to learn what did that caste system mean. And, the, and much of the, the book, the early going, where I'm describing these three characters, which I'm sure we'll get to, uh, what had to do with the, the, uh, how, how difficult it was for children to understand why they couldn't ride on the, why they couldn't ride on the swing in a particular playground like the other children, or, or why they couldn't drink from that water fountain, or why this particular uh, platform, they couldn't stand on that platform at the railroad uh, station, so that they couldn't understand. So you can imagine how difficult it must have been for parents to try to protect their children in that, in that circumstance. But that caste system was in place from the time of Plessy versus Ferguson until the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 1968, and even then were resisted for so long that they didn't actually take effect in parts of the South until the 70s. So essentially this went on for a very, very long time. Well, why don't we introduce these characters? Because what's, of course, fascinating about the book is that with all of this knowledge, with all of the research that you've done, with the 1,200 interviews, you chose to tell this amazing story of the migration of six million people through the story of three people. Um, and for those of you who haven't read the book, it's really a fascinating and I think incredibly compelling device because we're drawn into the lives of these three individuals who stand in the place of the six million and we have to only imagine how many more stories they are. So I'm just wondering how you came to decide that that was how you were going to tell the story, how you came to choose these three, and then maybe you could just tell us a word or two about Ida Mae Brandon Gladney George Swanson Starling, and Robert Joseph Pershing Foster. Well, I decided very early on that I wanted to tell it through three people who would represent the three major streams of this great migration. We happened to be in the middle or at the beginning of the one of the, the major streams, which was the East Coast stream, which took people from Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, and Virginia, and Florida up the East Coast, and Washington with the first stop, and Baltimore, Philadelphia, and on up the, the... Might I ask how many people are from North or South Carolina? Georgia? <laughs> A few Georgians. Um, it, it's always so heartwarming for me, actually, to go out and to find how beautifully predictable it is <laughs> that there are... That the, that the streams of migration were not haphazard unfurling of lost souls, but instead were fairly orderly, well-thought-out uh, choices that were made by people based upon the railroad routes, the bus routes, and the, 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 in any kind of route that is what carries people out on any migration. So this is one of those streams, and I needed to find someone to represent this stream. I needed to find someone to represent the, mid, the Midwest stream, which would be from Mississippi, Alabama, 
Tennessee, Arkansas, to Detroit, Chicago, uh, Cleveland, and the, and the entire Midwest. And then the other stream, which is the, 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 later, the latest of the three streams, the one that, went on, that started later and actually lasted for, for longer, was uh, the one from Texas and Louisiana to California. And so that was the stream that I also needed. So I needed three people to represent those three streams. I also wanted to find, and as it turned out, I did find three people who represented three different decades of this migration because I wanted the reader to be able to see that this went on for a very long time. It went on for not one generation, but three generations of people migrating. From, from World War I to 1970 represents three generations, so I wanted that to be clear too. And then I also needed to find people who left for different reasons and who had, were leaving different circumstances and were arriving to different outcomes wherever they went. And so through these three people, you get a sense of the enormity of the migration. And I also needed people who were in themselves characters, people that you would care enough about to want to read to find out what happened to them in the end. And so those were the things that I was looking for. One of the things that I hadn't mentioned before when it comes to the caste system, and Cheryl and I, mean, I have to certainly remember this because of the nature of the work that you've done, is that the caste system that I described was not one merely of polite distancing between the different races, but it was also one that because it was artificially imposed on everyone, it put pressure on everyone, and it, was, and it took tremendous um, effort, coercion, power, and uh, violence to maintain it such that uh, an African-American, in order to maintain the system, was lynched every four days, every four days in the South from the time of Plessy versus Ferguson until the early decades of the Great Migration, an African-American was lynched every four days somewhere in the South. So this occurred with, it was so artificial that it took great effort in order to maintain it. However, in the course of the lives of these three people, while uh, a historian once said that every African-American during that period, and also I might add every white Southerner during that period, would have been exposed to, heard about, witnessed, or even known someone who had been lynched. That's how common it was. So this was, this was a period of time that doesn't even sound like the United States, but in fact was a hallmark of what it meant to be, to be Southern at that time. But I didn't want the three people to, I didn't want that to be something that, uh, weighed down and um, uh, brought a kind of pallor to the entire text. I wanted these to be three different characters who had all different reasons. Some people leave, people leave for all different kinds of reasons. And that's, in, in fact, one reason why people don't even, uh, the, the story was not often told, because the people didn't talk about it. When you talk to the people who were part of the Great Migration, they don't consider themselves part of the Great Migration. The Great Migration is sort of a sociological term that we apply to them now. Demographically speaking, they were part of it. But if you ask them, they just say, well, no, I just, I left South Carolina in 1943 and I came to Baltimore. That's what they would say. You know, it was just, that was it. And if you tell them, you know, I, when I'd go out and interview how I found these three people is I'd go to senior centers and I went to AARP meetings and I went to churches. They're, Baptist churches in New York, in Brooklyn, where everybody's from South Carolina. I would, go to, uh, I, would, I would go to places in Los Angeles where everyone was from New Orleans, so that I was going to these places to try to find people. And I would say, I'm working on a book about the Great Migration, and um, they would, you know, no, no hands would go up. 
But if I said, if you came to Los Angeles between the years of, between 1918 and 1970, then, and, and you came from these states, you were part of the Great Migration, and then every hand would go up. So, so that was part of the reason why um, a lot of people don't even consider themselves part of this. And also the joy of seeing the connections that people are now able to make, because now we have a name for this very large thing that, that affected the country so much. But these three people. So the person who represents the uh, East Coast stream is a man named George Swanson Starling, who had been um, a fruit picker in Florida. He had had a little education, and so he'd had the opportunity to go to college for two years, and the money ran out. And he then returned to his home state, the region of his home state, where picking fruit, uh, citrus fruit, was the main uh, occupation for people of his station in his caste of African Americans. But he found that because he had some experience with, he was good with numbers, he could see how they were being cheated. The work was dangerous. They were having to climb up into 40-foot trees, meaning four stories high, in order to, to pick this fruit. People would fall out of the tree, uh, break a limb or worse, and there was nothing for them. And also, they, so the work was dangerous, and they were not being paid for it. Uh, very well, and he could see how much more the money was going for in the newspapers. And so he began to lead what was unthinkable, actually, for an African-American in the 40s, which was essentially strikes. They didn't call them that. They just basically said, we believe that for the work that we're doing and for the dangers that we're taking in order to pick this fruit, we would like to get three cents more a box, a nickel more a box. And for that, he uh, actually endangered his life, and he had to run for his life, flee um, uh, Florida, and ended up in Harlem um, but under threat of lynching. Um, and so he represents the, uh, the East Coast stream. The, mid the Midwest stream is represented by a woman named Ida Mae Gladney, who was, um, she was a, a sharecropper's wife who had the misfortune of having been terrible at picking cotton. Terrible at picking cotton. And that's not a good thing if that's what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and her family uh, ended up having to leave in the middle of the night without telling anyone but her mother and a few other trusted people um, because the South went to a great deal of effort to try to keep people from leaving. They would arrest people from the railroad trap platforms. They would arrest people from their seats once they were on the train. They would even wave the train on through if there were too many people to arrest. So in the early going of this migration, the South went to a great deal of trouble to keep people from leaving, not because they so much valued them as human beings, but because they, this was cheap labor. The very foundation of the Southern economy depended upon cheap labor. These people often were not paid at all, especially the sharecroppers who were essentially working for the right to live on the land that they were farming. And so uh, she ended up, she and her family ended up leaving because uh, a cousin of theirs, a relative of her husband's, had been beaten to within a, an inch of his life over um, a theft that it turned out he had not committed. But by that time, he had almost died, and her husband decided that it was time for them to go. And, and you described in the book that they had to sell off their things over the course of several weeks. They didn't want to let anybody know they were leaving, right? So it, they right. almost had to make it as though they, they had no intention of leaving. They had, to, they had to conceal their desire to leave because there were all kinds of people who might tell on them. Someone could go to the planter and say, it looks like your, looks like your sharecropper's trying to leave. I see them getting rid of, uh, to, uh, sell, trying to sell off what little they have. They had, they had to be very, very careful about that. She said, you didn't go and tell people what you were about to do. She that people didn't know we had gone till we had gone. And um, that was 1937 when she left. And then the last person uh, to leave 
in this book, the, the chronology of the book, was a surgeon who had been a, a captain in the army. He had served during the Korean conflict uh, in Europe. Uh, he was in Europe at the time of the Korean conflict, and um, he had been able to practice surgery in the army, but when he got out of the army, it turned out that he could not practice surgery in his own hometown of Monroe, Louisiana. And so he decided, uh, he had a young family, and he decided that he did not want to live out his life in that way. He wanted to practice what he'd been able to do in the Army. And so he set out on a course for Los Angeles, uh, for California. And it ended up being quite perilous for him, much more perilous than he'd anticipated. It turned out that Jim Crow, as it had been known, this caste system, the, thing, the se segregation which had prevented people from uh, African Americans from, say, being able to get gas at a gas station, being able to uh, eat in a restaurant, being able to, more importantly, when you're taking a cross-country drive, being able to stop at a motel and get a room. It turned out that the boundaries of Jim Crow went far beyond his, his, what he had anticipated. He had not anticipated how far he would have to drive without being able to stop. And he went into exquisite, excruciating detail about what his experience had been, the heartbreaking, sickening pit in your stomach feeling that he had when he realized that he was going to have to drive all this way through the desert, through the hairpin curves at night by himself. And his friends say that the wonder is not that he made it through that, but that he drove, that he made it at all because he was such a terrible driver. <laughs> was another thing. And so he told me the route, and I tried to recreate that route. I had my parents with me, and we drove drove part of the way, and it got to the point where I was veering off the road because I was attempting to do what he had done. I wanted to know what it was like to have your fingers locked to the wheel, having to drive in that position for so long that it's almost as if they are stuck to the wheel itself. They almost lock in place, and that your eyes grow so heavy from the lack of sleep that you begin, your eyes begin to ache and that you, uh, you, almost, you can't see the road from the sky because everything is black. There are, the settlements may be 80 or 100 miles apart. There is, no, there is no light, even now, and the roads are quite treacherous even now. So I began to veer from the road, and my parents were in the car with me, and they said, you know, we, we must stop the car. I mean, you're driving off the road. We, we must stop the car. And if you won't stop the car, let us out. <laughs> <laughs> so... So we, we ended up making it as far as Hume, Arizona, but it just shows you to remind people of what, they, what he had to go through and what all these people had to experience in driving, just merely driving from what... Might I ask how many people have a cell phone with them now? Why do you have a cell phone with you? You know, the thing is, we can't leave the house to go to the grocery store without a cell phone. These people, he had no, they, they had no cell phone. They drove across the country by themselves not knowing if there'd be a place to rest without a cell phone. There was no Skype, there was no email, there was no GPS, there was no satellite radio, all the things you take for granted. The cars in those days would overheat if you just looked at them. And yet they were making, so there, there were so many dangers to the road no matter what your background was, much less the idea that you might not be able to stop. I mean, you realize how perilous it was. You realize what a risk they were taking. And you also realize then how desperate they were to get out, that they would suffer that. So um, I think you wanted me to read? I do, I do. I, I will just say that, um, and, I, and I shared this with, with Isabel when we were coming down here, the section in which Dr. Foster talks about that experience and the experience of being turned away at the various motels, I literally had to read it three times. I couldn't get past it. It was just so painful. Um, and then at some point, I guess later when he's talking to you, he says, you know, I've, I've thought this thing over a thousand times, 3,000 times, and I thought 
this was such a familiar feeling if you've ever been um, it, the victim of racial discrimination, how you can just go over the experience again and again, looking at it from all kinds of different angles, and the pain decades later that he was able to communicate to you was just palpable through the text. But it's also true that um, Robert Foster is a character. He is a character. Of the three, he is the character. And um, I thought that it would be great if you read something about him. Okay. This is, um, it took years to find these people, and um, he was one of the last that I found. And um, it begins in this way. This is when I met him. Los Angeles, 1996. The panel door rises a story high and would befit a museum or government office, but is actually the front door of a Spanish revival south of Wilshire. The door opens, and there stands a one-time bourbon-swilling army captain and deft-handed surgeon who, now in his later years, is a regular at the blackjack tables and the trifectas at Santa Anita. But he is at the heart of it all, and perhaps most important, a long-standing, still bitter, and somewhat obsessive expatriate from the 20th century South, the heartbreak, Jim Crow land he chose to leave before it could reject him again. He is a Californian now, this Robert Joseph Pershing Foster. He is the color of strong coffee and has waves in his hair, which he lets grow as untamed as Einstein's, but then brushes back like the boys in the band. He's wearing a white cotton island shirt, loose slacks and sandals, the uniform of the well-to-do L.A. pensioner. He has the build and bearing of a Sammy Davis Jr. and not a little of the showmanship and delightful superficiality that seem to grow on people in certain circles of L.A. Now, when I read this in L.A., I thought to myself, oops, I meant to edit that out. <laughs> but they actually loved it. They said, yep, we're superficial. We're superficial. Yep, you, you nailed it. <laughs> he walked straight-backed and slew-footed into the foyer, past the curved faux-gone-with-the-wind staircase and the East Asian pottery. He gestures toward the living room, an imposing museum of a space that dwarfs him in its, in its volume, fairly frozen in the seafoam carpet and hot pink tulip chairs out of a Sherbety Doris Day movie from the 50s. The whole effect is as starched and formal as the tuxedos he used to wear to the parties he threw for himself back when his wife Alice was alive and the money was raining down like confetti. He seems accustomed to people fawning over the place and with the prim air of leading men of his favorite movies from back in the 40s, insists on serving his guests a slice of lemon pound cake and vanilla ice cream on Rosenthal China, whether they would like to have it or not. <laughs> His heavy-lidded eyes look straight into those of his listener and have a distractingly thick fringe of lashes like those seen on babies in starlets. He is a physician, or was for most of his adult life, and by most accounts, a very good one, and is, and is prone to pontificate like a man of his years of and accomplishments. But he is just as likely to interrupt himself and check the time to see if he can still make the one o'clock at the Hollywood Park racetrack. His photo albums are filled with an unlikely assortment of bookies and blues singers and dentists and fraternity men and surgeons and society people whose approval he craved, even though he knew they were too pretentious to matter, really. He doesn't say it because it would be gauche and hardly worth mentioning from his point of view, but there happened to be a lot of little Roberts around town due to the fact that over the years he delivered a number of baby boys whose mothers were so grateful for his firm hand and calming reassurances at the precise moment of truth that they named their sons not after their husbands, <laughs> but after the doctor who had delivered their babies. 
Before he begins the story, he tells you it's a long one and you can't get it all. He's lived too many lives, done too much, known too many people, ridden so high and so low that there's no point in fooling yourself into thinking you can capture the whole of it. You could try, of course, and he agrees to give as much as he can. I love to talk, he says, a smile forming on his still chiseled face as he sits upright in his tulip chair, and I am my favorite subject. <laughs> And he later goes on to be the, the surgeon for, for Ray Charles, right? He does. He becomes surgeon to Ray Charles after a very difficult go of it. Yeah, yeah. So um, these three characters, they end up in uh, Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York, respectively. I guess Dr. Foster first is in Oakland and then ends up in, in Los Angeles. Um, so tell us, what did they find um, as, as representatives of the six million when they arrived in the north? And um, explain why so many black people ended up in Newark. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll answer that one first. People ended up in Newark, a lot of people ended up in Newark because there's an, uh, an, interesting, um, an interesting fact when you're riding the train into New York City, which, is, which would have been the destination of most people trying to get there. And that was that if anyone's been ridden the train there, you know that there is a Penn Station in New York City that you're trying to get to. But the stop before that is also Penn Station, and it's in a place called Newark. And to many Southerners who already thought that Northerners talked with a fast clip that might have been more difficult for them to decipher upon first hearing it, and after the 23-hour ride from however long they had been, wherever they were coming from, were so anxious to get to where they were going that they got off at the wrong Penn Station and decided to stay in what they learned then was Newark and not New York. But that's a story about how New York got a good part of its, its black population. But for the three, what did, what did the three people meet? Uh, what, did, what did they discover? What greeted them? And then also representing all the others. They essentially found forbidding places that were uh, resistant to their arrival, were uh, hostile to them, resentful that they had arrived and made life very difficult for them, many, many challenges from quarters that one, one, one might not expect. And that was partly because um, they were arriving as, remember, economically speaking, they were arriving as the cheapest labor in the country. Their arrival meant that they put pressure on all people, recent immigrants from other parts of the world, people who were already there, African-Americans who might have already been there, who were already uh, scuffling and struggling to make a way for themselves. So the arrival of these people were, the, theory, the fear was that it would press down on the income and the wages of the people who were already there. That's sort of the macro look at it. But when it comes to the personal, the cultural, the people stood out. They had very thick accents. They uh, were not, they were dressing not as city people, but as people who just come from very small towns or from the country itself, countryside itself. They were wearing clothes of burlap and, and of denim, and they stood out from the very beginning. They wanted very much to be accepted and to make a go of it, and it took time for them to get adjusted. And then when they adjusted, which is also the case for many immigrant groups, they then became the people who were not always necessarily more welcoming of those coming behind them. That's just a very human reaction. And so some of the most uh, greatest hostility that they got was 
would have been from African Americans who had been there already and were worried about what was what the effect of these people coming in, the people who had not yet learned the ways of the North. One of the things that the Urban League did was they sent out little cards to them um, at, the, at the churches or at the places where they would go to try to get work. They would give them cards and say, do not put your laundry out in the front, do not go out barefoot, do not, you know, do not go out in rollers, all these things to ha try to help them acclimate to life in the north. And the people often quickly wanted to do that because they wanted to fit in and they needed to get these jobs. So they, they were met with a lot of, a lot of uh, hostility. Of course, the most extreme cases were that in some ways the very thing that they were seeking followed them north. And um, there are many cases, uh, uh, references in the, to the experience of the people running into such things as restrictive covenants, which meant that they could not move into neighborhoods that they would have liked to have moved. As they were all hemmed in and, and limited and restricted as to where they could live, which is w the way that many of the ghettos sprang up to begin with. And they also found that when they did manage a breakthrough, they might have gotten through because uh, a white realtor or someone who sympathized with their plight would go ahead and try to sell them something, but then once they moved in, they would find that their house might be firebombed. In one case, one of the people in the book had a palm tree. This is Los Angeles. The, the palm tree was set on fire. That's, that was sort of the equivalent of a, of a cross burning, but it occurred in a lovely neighborhood um, in, in West Los Angeles. Uh, when the first black family moved in. So they, they had a really difficult go of it before making the adjustment. And you talk a little bit about what happened at the workplace, particularly in the factories with the resistance from white workers who saw the black workers who came up from the South as a threat and the ways in which many managers manipulated that because they could have this labor that was quite cheap and might accept uh, lower wages than the population that was. Yeah, one of the greatest tragedies I think that's occurred in the 20th century when it comes to race relations is that the people who were arriving from other parts of the world to the United States at the same time that the that black southerners were arriving to these same cities, whether Chicago, New York, Cleveland, Detroit, whatever these cities might have been, were in fact the same people. They were the same people. They were people who were frightened, who had arrived from, who had, had left the only place that they had ever known for a place that they'd never seen. They were often people of the land. They were often peasant people, one might say, who were just learning the ways of this new land and then and the new these big fast cities they were people who wanted the best for their children they were people who were learning a new language in some ways now obviously african americans are speaking english already but they were speaking a southern a southern form of the language and which actually made it difficult for people to even understand them one story related to that is that um um a, a little boy uh, arrived from from alabama to cleveland and he was, uh, his parents had brought him clearly, and the father was quite afraid and didn't want to move, but the mother did want to move, and so they, that meant they moved. That tells you something about that family. And um, anyway, he made, his first day of school, he told the teacher what his name was. His name was James Cleveland Owens. And uh, they, he, he said, I'm known as JC. And she, the teacher couldn't understand him, and so she just gave him the name that she thought he had said, which was Jesse, which is how Jesse Owens, who went on to win multiple Olympic uh, gold medals in Berlin, the 1936 Berlin Olympics, that's how he got his name. 
And so they, while they spoke the same language, they were not always understood. So one of the great tragedies is that the people who were coming from other parts of the world, all working in the foundries, in the factories, the slaughterhouses, the steel mills, and were torn apart in some ways by the fact that those coming in from Europe, for example, were permitted into unions. Those coming up from the South, the African Americans, were often not permitted into unions, generally speaking not. And they, in fact, worse than that, were often brought in as strike breakers. So that was clearly no way for these disparate groups who actually had so much more in common than they had been led to believe. There was no way for them to be able to build alliances, which was exactly what many of the industrialists would have wanted, which is one of the great tragedies of 20th century life and race relations, which we're still living with today. And so this is, this is yet another way that this great migration um, we're still living with the effects of the movements and the decisions of these people from long ago. Not actually not that long ago, was within the 20th century. Let me make sure that um, you all who have cards are starting to write questions because we're coming to that time, so put your, your mind to it. Um, I have to tell you, Isabella, when I got to the end of the book, I was just very sad. Um, and I was sad because and I really want to know your feelings about this. It, it seemed almost bittersweet. Um, things didn't necessarily turn out so great um, for, for all of these characters. Um, the, the cost to the family, particularly of George Swanson Starling, but also Dr. Foster, um, who um, was very successful in some ways, but who, who ended in a way that was, um, seemed kind of beneath him and what he had created for himself. I wondered if you could say something, not only just describing it, but also your feelings, because you, you were talking with Dr. Foster at the end of his life and knew the kind of pain that he was in. Um, and yet, then there's Ida Mae Gladney, who's in somehow she seems to be the one who leaves a legacy. Can you tell something, not only about them, but what it says about the Great Migration? Well, I think that it would be, um, it would not be accurate to portray this as um, a, a cheerful from beginning to end story, because clearly it, it was not. Um, it's a human story, it's a universal story, and life can be tough all the way around, and it certainly was tough for them. Um, I, when, when I talk to people who've read the book, they often say they're sad because they've grown to love the people or feel invested in them, and they hate to see the story end because they've kind of grown to love them. But um, I, don't view it, I don't view it with sadness. I feel um, so honored to have met them just absolutely humbled and honored to have met them. I feel humbled and honored and inspired to know what these people went through and the sacrifice that they made so that maybe not for themselves, but their children and their grandchildren might have a better life. And in some ways, that um, all, it's in a way, all Americans benefit from the, from the sacrifices that they made in ways that we don't often think about. One of them is that, um, just getting to the, to the three people, the, we have to remember what were they go their goals when they, were, when they left. What were they leaving and what were they seeking? Their goals were so very modest that it didn't mean much, it didn't take much for them to be successful in their definition of success, when you think about it. Because uh, they were leaving a caste system where there, were, there was so little left for them there that it had to be better wherever they were going. They were not seeking to become CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and the builders of, builders of skyscrapers. They were hoping that they'd be able to walk down the street free. George Starling himself said, I was hoping that I could live and stand as a man and not worry about being lynched at night. And living out his life, that is what he got. 
Didn't mean he was happy every day. And many, many challenges, many ups and downs, a lot of sadness in his family. But if that was what he was seeking, that is what he got. Um, I think when we look at the Great Migration on the whole, uh, the legacy is, as for any immigrant experience, what is it that is there, what is it that we have left to show for all of their sacrifice? And what we have to show for it is, in some ways, the civil rights movement itself, because the civil rights movement would have happened, which also led to other freedom movements that we now take for granted, to the opening up of the world in so many ways to people of color and immigrant groups, uh, to women, uh, to, uh, to uh, gays, to so many groups that, uh, that were able to build upon the great sea change that occurred in the in this 1960s. There were places that African Americans could go, those who decided even to stay. When they began the effort to uh, become, to, to exert their, uh, their attempt toward freedom, which they could not have done earlier in the, in, the, um, in the 20th century, when they began to do that, they now had options themselves. They had places that they could go. They had relatives and people that they knew in the North that if things got very difficult, they could escape. They also had the opportunity, as did Martin Luther King, to actually see and feel what freedom felt like. In other words, he had the opportunity. He went to Boston University. He, got, he went to graduate school there. He met his wife, Coretta Scott, in Boston. And he had the opportunity to see what it's like to actually interact with whites as, as an equal. And it was after that experience that he returned to the South and made changes that, of course, made history. So this great migration opened up a way over many, many decades' time that created and put more pressure on the South to ultimately change. So I think we owe... Uh, are the civil rights uh, gains of the 1960s to the slow effort, slow but steady departure of so many people to other parts of the country. We owe the, the civil rights gains to the decisions of these individual people. So, and the other thing is that these people were often sending money back home. They were sending back money much more than they could even afford to the people back home, not just to help them with clothes, but also to help support the civil rights movement. So all of these things combined meant that North and South, Northeast, Midwest, West, and in the South, there was change coming that took a long time, but the, the migration was a part of it. And when it comes to our culture, American culture was changed forever as a result of this migration because these people who had been held down in the lowest caste it, it, sometimes, many of them were, many of them had the opportunity to grow and flourish uh, creatively in ways that they would not have in the South. For example, B.B. King, the name's B.B. King, um, Louis Armstrong, Richard Wright, the great bard of the 20th, of the 20th century uh, and of the Great Migration. All of these people were people who had migrated from the South to the North, and they were able to, to flourish creatively. But it was the children the children helped change the face of American culture in ways that we often take for granted. Toni Morrison, we're in, in this great library. Toni Morrison, um, had her parents not migrated from Alabama to Ohio, would not have been able to walk into a library and, and ha do the simple act of taking out a library book. She would not have been able to do that uh, had, she, had her parents not migrated. And of course, if you're going to become a Nobel laureate, you kind of need to be able to read. <laughs> you know? And so it helps. And so that was one, you know, one out of many, many examples. August Wilson, Romare Bearden, 
Jacob Lawrence, all of these people in the arts were the children of people who had migrated from the South to the North, who had the luxury of being able to uh, to grow creatively, that they would simply not have had the opportunity to do had they been on, you know, on a farm out in the middle of in the middle of the country in Alabama or North Carolina. When it comes to music, music simply would not be uh, the American ear would be different than it is now had there been no great migration. Jazz, for example, Miles Davis, his his parents migrated from his parents migrated from Arkansas to Illinois, where he had the opportunity to be able to, uh, to practice and to learn, to have the time to be able to practice and, and to hone his genius. Um, Thelonious Monk, his parents migrated from North Carolina to Harlem when he was five years old, where he too had the luxury, really, of being able to take music lessons, which he never would have been able to do had he been in the, in the um, tobacco country of North Carolina. And uh, John Coltrane, John Coltrane migrated from North Carolina to Philadelphia, where at the age of 17, which is kind of old, you know, in the, in the, in the music world, I think you're washed up at 20, you know, or something. Um, uh, he, it was there in Philadelphia after he had migrated that he got his first alto sax. Where would jazz be had John Coltrane not ever gotten a hold of an alto sax. Where would music be? Not just American music, but international music. He is as popular, if not more popular, in Paris than he is in the United States. So we're talking about the effect on the world when it comes to the way the world listens and the way that the, 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 our human ear is different as a result of this. Motown simply would not have existed. Motown would absolutely not have existed because Barry Gordy, his parents were were from Georgia. They migrated to Detroit. He became, he's a young man, uh, grows up in Detroit, becomes a young man, decides he wants to go into music. He does not play music himself, but he wants to go into it. He doesn't have the money to go out scouting for the best talent all over the country. So what does he do? He looks around his own neighborhood, and there's a girl, 14 years old. She has a singing voice, wants to go into music. Parents don't want her to do it. Parents are from, mother from Alabama, father from West Virginia, do not want her to go into music, want to go to college. She wants to go into music. He signs her up. She has two friends. One is, they're from the South, too. Her name was Diana Ross, Diane at the time. He brings them on. The other's Mary Wilson and Florence Ballard. The three of them become the Supremes, and that's just one act that we now know of. They would not have, first of all, not even have existed. Diana Ross wouldn't have existed because her parents would never have met. He then hears about this very large family in Gary, Indiana. Very large. <laughs> the mother is, was from Alabama, the father from Arkansas. They met outside of Chicago. Met. So none of them would have existed. Five of them are boys, and they're very good singers. One, the youngest one is the front man, and apparently he dances very well. <laughs> Barry Gordy hears about them. He signs them up, and the Jackson Five get go beyond just the little dance hall uh, talent shows of Gary, but become known the world over. We would not even know their names. They would not even have existed had there been no great migration. And it goes on and on. There was a man who went from, North, from New Orleans to Minneapolis. He meets a woman up there. He, they have a son. His name is, uh, they name him uh, Prince Nelson. Prince Rogers Nelson, and he's known as Prince, 
and he would not have existed either. It just goes on and on and on, particularly when it comes to music. And of course, in sports, there's a man named Bill Russell who would never have gotten the chance to go into the NBA ever because his parents were uh, in Monroe, Louisiana, where they were having an extremely difficult time, horrific time under the Jim Crow system. And uh, the parents left because the father said he was afraid that he might kill someone, which would leave his whole family in trouble. And so then they decided to leave. He, he, they were under that much stress. And um, so the father decides to, to leave for the betterment of the family, that, to take the family away. Bill Russell is nine years old. They go to Oakland from Monroe, which was the natural trajectory for people from that part of the South. Bill Russell gets the opportunity to go to integrated schools. He describes himself as having been feeling like an immigrant because everything was new. The kids were new, the language was new, everything was new, and he had the opportunity to do that. He went on to go to an integrated college, which he never would have been able to do in Louisiana. He leads the Dons at the University of San Francisco to two NCAA championships, which would absolutely have been impossible had he stayed in uh, Louisiana, where he very likely would have been a sawmill hand that we never would have heard of. But instead, the Celtics hear about him, and they recruit him. And he leads them to 11 championships in 13 years through the heyday of the Celtics' reign and goes into history as one of the greatest defensive players of all time in the National Basketball Association, which is astounding. And we would not even know his name as it had his parents not migrated. And the list goes on and on and on. So when I get to the end of the book, I don't feel a sadness. I feel that these people made a tremendous sacrifice that we are the beneficiaries of. They may not have benefited, but their children, grandchildren, and the rest of the United States, the country, and the world have benefited from in ways that we're only now being able to really calculate. It's all in the book, so <laughs> get a few copies. Let's get, just see if we can get a couple of questions from the audience, and I really appreciate you all writing them, uh, and I think they'll, some of them will be posted on the website of uh, OSI Baltimore. Well, one of the questions was uh, about those who stayed behind, and, I, and you talk a little bit about that, because some of the characters go back, and so there is that connection. And so this question is, you know, it seems as if many people who migrated were able to preserve their southern connections, um, so many kids went south for the summer. Also, did many people return to the south later in life? A lot of the people who were part of the original migration did not go back. Uh, there's a lot of uh, quotes from them. They had been so embittered by what they went through that they didn't tell their children and grandchildren about what they went through, which is one of the reasons why uh, the, the story often was not really truly told. A lot of the people who are reading the book now are... Uh, now feeling this uh, desire to go and talk with their, ch their parents and grandparents about it because they had not heard these stories growing up. Um, and so there's, there's a lot that, was, that often wasn't said. I want to make sure I answer the question that you're talking about the people who stayed. Yeah, but the people who stayed behind in the South. Yeah. And um, I get actually a lot of emails from people saying that their parents might have already passed away or their grandparents might have passed away, though those who actually participated in this. This is a dwindling generation, and I encourage all of everyone who has relatives. And I say everyone of all backgrounds and ethnicities because there is, there's an immigrant background. There's a, there's a, the migration is what 
to be human means often to migrate. And everyone on the continent is here, even Native Americans are here because someone came across some body of water to get to this continent. And so it's in all of our backgrounds, and I encourage people to, uh, to do the research and to, to find the people, the oldest people in our backgrounds, whether it's some, uh, you know, a great-grandmother grandmother who came from, from Ireland or from, from, uh, from Taiwan, whatever, wherever it might be. But getting to the people who stayed, the people who stayed are often the, the keepers of the culture. So that a lot of the people, a lot of this means that I'm, when people come to me and say, what shall I do? I often say, go back to where they came from. And um, there's a great deal of interest in genealogy right now. And so many people are having to go back to where they came from. So that means for some Americans, it means going back to a particular county in Ireland. For some people, it means going back to a province in China. And for African Americans, it might mean going back to Alabama. And that's what I'm suggesting because there are often um, cousins or relatives who are the keepers of the culture. They may be the ones who kept the, the family Bible because the person who left wasn't able to carry it with them. And so um, the people who stayed often have maintained that culture in a way that I think um, provides uh, a, a ready source of information for us. And people did need to stay. In fact, there's a, there are a lot of quotes in the book from people who are, in some ways, a Greek chorus uh, if you get the book, it's almost as if you have an anthology of references of what people have said about the migration over the years. There are quotes from James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison, Zora Neale Hurston, and from newspapers uh, uh, in Macon, Georgia, what were, what were the planters saying about this migration while it was going on. And there's a quote from someone uh, who stays in the South that says, that, well, we have to stay here so that you all have a place to come back to when you want to come back to. And, and that's a beautiful thing. And that's a beautiful thing. Oh, goodness. There's so many good ones. Um, I kind of like this one. Um, the, the questioner asks, in addition to the primary story of the great mi mi migration, do you think that the underreporting of the story, because that's how you started out, by calling, you know, so I'll just kind of paraphrase the question. Why, why is it so underreported, do you think? What is the reason? Well, as I said, one is, one is that people didn't talk about it. It was just that painful. Um, it, when people left, they left for good. And they left and didn't look back. And when they left, some people changed their name. One of the characters in the book First half, he's known under this name. Second half, you as a reader have to get used to him in a, under another name because he changed his name. Some people, uh, those who could actually pass for white, made the ultimate migration and just moved, went... <laughs> not, great, great migration. Great, great migration. <laughs> they actually migrated not just to another state but into another race. And so there were all different things that people did when it came to leaving. And I want to make sure I answer the question. Well, I think, I think you have. Okay. I think you have. Um, so what brought, brought about the end of the Great Migration? You said you alluded to the Civil Rights Movement. And is, that, is that really it to your mind? Yeah. I'm sorry, to your mind. Is it, is it, is it the Civil I just think I'm in my living room <laughs> talking with her. I'm sorry. You all are here. Hello. Um, <laughs> what brought about the end of the Great Migration? You, you referred to the Civil Rights Movement and the, and the, and the, you know, the new civil rights laws and the beginning to come into effect in the 70s. Is that what brings about the end of it? Yeah, there's a quote that, there's so many quotes and comments in the book that as much time as I spent working on this, I remember them almost without having to look at the book. And one quote was from uh, a study that was done by uh, uh, an, an, an economist 
it during the World War I era of the migration. And he went to Pittsburgh, and he talked with the people who were clearly there and needing to get out, and they were doing the work that was necessary for them there. It was so crowded that there often people had to share. They had to swap beds. They almost had to switch beds, meaning that they, they could rent the bed for 12 hours. And then when their time was up, here comes the morning shift saying, you got to go, because now I got to flee. So that gives time share a whole different meaning. Um, <laughs> But, but, but these people clearly were there for a reason, and uh, this man, uh, the, the economist, did some interviewing, and one man said, if there had been any way, if I had any choice of what to do, I would rather have stayed. I would rather have stayed. And so the people really did not, they would have preferred to have had the place of their birth, the land of camellias and jasmine and crepe myrtles and china berries they would, and the mother and father remember when they left and this is the background of everybody in this room to some degree or other we're here because somebody had to look into the eyes of their mother and their father not knowing if they would ever see them alive again and that mother and that father who chose not to leave did not know if they would ever see that son or daughter alive again and sometimes people would not hear from uh, anything about their parents, because remember this is before email. No Skype. Even long distance service was expensive and far too expensive for people who were just barely making it in the new world. And so sometimes the, the next that they would hear about their parents would be uh, a telegram saying that your father has passed away or you need to return, your mother is very ill, gravely ill. You, need, you must return home quickly. So this was a true, uh, you know, in some ways this was a, this was a break that was uh, very painful to have made. And when the people left, they really left for good. And it had to have been a horrific thing to force people to have left something that extreme, the only place that they'd ever known. And the thing that ended it was when the conditions that had, that had propelled the people to leave to begin with were no longer in place. And that was when the, all the whites only and colored only signs went down, when people could vote, when people could walk into a grocery store in the front and order up a, you know, a pound of meat or be able to be served at a restaurant. When all those things changed, that's when the South opened up and the migration statistically ended. That's just a fact. And it was also when what we now see as a reverse migration began to take hold. The reverse migration is in some ways maybe the one, one of the greatest legacies of the original Great Migration because it op helped to open up a way for the South to change so that the people could begin returning, meaning the, the, often the, the children and grandchildren who are in some ways returning to a place of spiritual and ancestral meaning. And, um, and also, of course, they're following also the, the path of so many other Americans because the South was a place, the Sun Belt economy had, was more, uh, was thriving. So in some ways, that, that's the connection North and South between them. There's a really tough question here, and it actually reminds me of the story of George, uh, George Swanson Starling. The question was, what became of the drive, discipline, and self-knowledge that were an integral part of our community that deteriorated into a drug and crime culture? And maybe... The story about George Swanson Starling kind of is encapsulated in that question. Uh, yeah, well, that was, that's a great question. Um, and the, the, the fact of the matter is the people who came up in this great migration had no idea what they were entering. No idea. There is nothing that could have prepared them for the 
harshness and the unremitting uh, uh, heartlessness, you might say, of what the uh, large numbers of people gathered in too small a space can do to the human spirit. And they had, in some ways, this kind of resolve that always occurs with the first generation of immigrants. The first generation, failure is not an option. It absolutely is not an option, because they can't go back and have the people say, see, I knew you weren't going to make it. I knew you would come back. I knew you weren't going to. We told you not to go to begin with. There were people who told them not to go. And so failure was not an option. And one of the things that we learned through the new census data that has come out, that have been, become available uh, over the last 20 years, is that the people who were part of this great migration, those original people, actually, even though they had um, not the same quality of education, they often had as many years education as the people that they met, up, that they encountered in the North, the African Americans encountered in the North. They, but more importantly, they actually made more money, higher wages than those in the North, not because they were being paid more per hour, but because they were working longer hours and they were often working multiple jobs in order to make it because they, because they could not fail. But one of the things that they had not anticipated as a result of all the hard work that they were going to have to do, all that resolve and determination, the hours upon hours of, of commuting to get to where they were going to work when before they would not have to commute because they were in a small town, where they didn't have the backup to watch their children because in, this, in one of the... the good things about the South is in a small town, everyone's watching for one another. And the children were more, it's more easy to, 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 to watch over your children when you know that you have a second cousin around the corner and your aunt is down the street. There was a, a difficult, they had a much more difficult time watching over their children, especially if they were working two and three <coughs> jobs in order to make ends meet in this harsh, forbidding new land. And that meant that the children were alone and un, unattended and often open to all of the ills that were there in a big city, and many of them succumbed to that. And it was its only human nature that that was going to happen. And that's one of the sad things about it. Also, combine that with the fact that the people were not talking about what they went through in the South. Many of the children and grandchildren grew up knowing nothing about the great sacrifices that were made, about the strength and ingenuity and the determination and the drive and the inspiration and the dreams and the fortitude, and in fact, I would say courage of the people who made this break from all that they knew for a place that they'd never seen, that was not passed along to them. That is within their background, but it wasn't told to them. So you have the negative influences of the big, harsh, forbidding cities, children who were unattended because the parents, the grandparents, or whoever it were, they were working because they could not fail, had no backup, no backup. And the children open to all these things, and they're not getting the stories that many other immigrant groups are told. One of the reasons why I wrote this book is because I had the opportunity to go to an integrated school um, in Washington, D.C., unlike my parents. My mother made sure, she was a teacher, so she made sure that she got me in the best school she could get me in. And when I went there, I got the chance to hear and get to know people from other backgrounds and other uh, experiences other parts of the world, and I heard the stories. St. Patrick's Day was the day when people talked about the great-grandfather, the grandfather had come over from County Cork and, uh, or Cary and, and with a, you know, a dollar in his pocket, and they did this and they did that and educated their children and all that. And I felt that I had no stories to tell. I didn't feel as if I had anything to add to it. And little did I know, there was a lot to say. <laughs> but... Um, I, I didn't, we, didn't ha we didn't hear that. We just, we just heard we just were here. We just arrived out of nowhere, and here we are, because they didn't talk about it. 
There was a sense of shame attached to having been from uh, a country town in Georgia or Mississippi or Alabama. There was a shame attached to the fact that somebody's grandmother might have had to take in laundry in order to survive. There was a shame attached to someone having to pick cotton or pick tobacco in order to survive, and that was all that they could do because that was the caste to which they were assigned upon birth. And so there was a shame attached to that. Suddenly we're in the new world, and we, as we, we never did any of that. And so those kinds of things, even to this day, uh, we don't often talk about. And it's my goal to embrace that and to say the people did what they had to do in order to survive. And there's nothing shameful about that. That's something to be proud of, and that's, something that's dignified, hard, honest work. And they did that, and that should be passed on to the children. It was not, and hopefully it's through stories such as this that it will open it up and make people feel better about being able to share those stories with, with the children and the next generation so they can understand where they came from and that there's nothing to be ashamed of. We have to end on that note because that was so powerful. <laughs>